Good morning. Um, who has been able to either listen or has been here to hear the teaching on praise? Have we up to speed? Because I'm going from that into something else. So, all right, we have some recapping. If you haven't listened to it on the Facebook page, you'll get the link or through YouTube. It's actually important because I'm going from the understanding of what praise is into the understanding of worship. And worship sits undergirded by praise. It's not one thing that's separate from another. They flow into. So you actually need to grasp the concept of praise as much as possible to understand worship. So whose responsibility is that? Yay! I love an empowering church. All right, we have it. We have it as a resource now, so you can go and listen to it. Um... So what I did as I spoke on praise um, until the spirit of worship comes. And so today I want to speak on worship until the glory comes. And um, um, though I've said that praise undergirds worship, they're very different things. Um, so the harder you go, the more you go into this, the worship and then the glory, the more mystical it gets. So my hope is that my language is understandable because it's so important to understand. But my also my hope is that you would yield your understanding that you'd be willing to explore the mystical with me and figure this out. Is that all right? Yeah. And just a reminder, I say, is that all right? And is that okay? Quite a few times. It's to hear if you understand what I'm saying. It's not asking permission. <laughs> um, I feel I've been blessed in this community to feel family and I've been given permission. So I promise it's not from a place of insecurity. It's really just to make sure that we're on the same page and I can move forward. Okay. So when I spoke on, on, oh, Andrew, Andrew and Kat's birthday's next week, so they've gone away on their annual um, birthday weekend getaway, but he does amazing graphics. Happy birthday, Andrew. Happy birthday, Kat. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> Worship until the glory comes. When I spoke on praise, I talk about the seven Hebrew words of praise. Worship's different. To be honest, if you, if you go through a lot of study on worship, they say they're not 100% sure. But in context, this is some of the expressions that are around the word worship, like the physical expressions, and these are the sort of things that followed. So they're trying to find out what this word even means. That's how mystical it becomes, which actually when, when we start to learn on this, it'll make more sense. It, it's, the heart has its mystical side too, doesn't it? It's not just spiritual. So we've got worship until the glory comes. I want to touch on the Hebraic, and I want to touch on the Aramaic. Yay. And I want to speak on the Greek, because there's sort of... They've sort of mastered one of each, and so it's good to see the variances and see that where they are in agreement, and yet different authors, like if you think of Matthew, he wrote a lot about worship in the Greek and to a specific audience, so sometimes they emphasize one thing more than the other because of who they're talking to. So I just want to give the fundamental of what it is and then scripturally how we can glean from that. Is that all right? Okay, so I'm going to start with a Hebrew word. Um, Brian Simmons talks on this, so I'm just going to quote what he says. But the Hebrew word used most commonly for worship is, and um, I'm not in any of these languages, it's not my forte, so if I pronounce this wrong, I apologize. I hope that this is not your first language and you're offended. But we know what to deal with events. Okay, so the Hebrew word most commonly used for worship is shakar. There it is, shakar. So Brian Simmons from the Passion Translation, he says, this root word is taken from the concept of a deep well, a place to go low and sink into. And this is why we bow before the Lord. We lower our bodies and our hearts before him in worship. It's why we also drink from him in this place and offer him the water of our adoration. It's 
such a great scribe, isn't he? Wise men, think like when Jesus was born, the wise men. Wise men and women still bow before him and worship. A lot of the word worship in scripture is used around the birth of Jesus. The wise men came and worshipped him. They gave gifts and they bowed. A lot of it is the description of worshipped and bowed down. So there's a posture in worship. Um, all right, I want to give some examples to this, some other ones. In John 4, um, we read about Jesus and we read about the Samaritan who sits at, the, the woman who sits at the well. And in the Passion Translation, this, sec- this section of Scripture is actually called the Thirsty Savior. The Thirsty Savior, okay? Now, he'd sat on the edge of the well, tired from the journey, and we read in John 4, verse 8, Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink of water. If you read in the footnotes, I just love the Passion Translation. If you read the footnotes, it says, The water Jesus wanted was the refreshing, satisfying pleasure of her devotion. He says to each one of us, Nothing satisfies me except you. The sinner drank from the Savior, and the Savior drank from the sinner, and both were satisfied, yet neither ate or drank, but both were satisfied. John 4, 23, 24 talks about this some more. I'm going to go there a little later. But if we look at Song of Solomon's 4, verse 15. He, this is the king, so this is God. This is the king speaking. Song of Songs 4, 15. He's describing how I find the promised land flowing within you. He's talking to us. I find the promised land flowing within you. It's interesting. Then he says... Verse 15, this is God to us. Your life flows into mine, pure as a garden spring. A well of living water springs up from within you, like a mountain brook flowing into my heart. Isn't that wonderful? That's not him to us, that's us to him. That's his description to us. So the thirsty saviour wanted it, the whole parallel of that time where it was someone who he wasn't meant to speak to. It was a woman and a Samaritan and the disciples had all gone ahead and he was asking for a drink. He was asking for devotion and he talks about how, because this is where the one word in worship where they notice he's focusing on this word because in um, John 4, 23, 24, because, because you won't need a place to worship anymore. True worshippers will be those who worship in spirit and truth. We get confused by that phrasing. We're going to go into it a bit more. The metaphor that we see here, though, of the drinking, it's actually the whole way through Scripture, and it's really important to notice what he's emphasizing, because in in understanding worship, we need to understand drinking, okay? A deep well, a place to go low and sink into. It's why we lower our bodies and our hearts before him, and why we also drink from him in this place, and we offer water of our adoration. You look at Revelations 22, 17. So Revelation is like crazy, crazy metaphors, but after being caught up in the glory, seeing all the things that will be, having the greatest insight of any man in his generation, John receives the simple message of how worthy God is of our worship. He sees it all and he bows down prostrate and starts worshiping the angel and he says, no, 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 I'm just the one he sent. Worship God. It's a full declaration. Every, after everything you've seen, you'll want to worship God. That's the outcome, all right? He talks about how we should desire the continual coming of the Spirit, the continual presence of God through the same language of drinking. If you think of drinking, how many times you swallow? The continual presence of God. 
He desires us to drink from him. Revelation 22:17. Come, says the Holy Spirit and the bride in a divine duet. That come means be continuously coming. Be always flowing. Let nothing be hindering this movement. Let nothing in me hinder this flow from you to me and from me to you. Let no blocks be in the way. Come, says the Holy Spirit and the bride in divine duet. Let everyone who hears this duet join them in singing. When we sing come, we're also prophesying come. Let everyone who hears this continual drinking want to come and drink. Let everyone gripped with spiritual thirst, those who are poor in spirit, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Spiritual thirst, say, come. Let everyone who craves the gift of living water, that's Jesus, come and drink it freely. It is my gift to you. Come. So this has been, this is what he made a way for. It's a gift. This is what we get to live from is this fount that won't, drum, won't, won't run dry, all right? Again, we see the same language in John seven thirty seven, titled Rivers of Living Water. Then on the most important day of the feast, the last day, there's a footnote there says, when man's feasting is over, there is still thirst. We can live for a little while without food, but we can't live for very long without water. We can eat a lot, but we're still going to be thirsty. There's an innate need for, for the drink, okay? More than even food, we, need, we, we thirst. Jesus comes at the last day of the feast to satisfy the thirst of those who seek God. Only the Lord Jesus can quench the spiritual thirst of men by giving them his living water. So on the most important day of the, last, of the feast, on the last day, Jesus stood and shouted out to the crowds, all you thirsty ones, come to me. Come to me and drink. Believe in me so that the rivers of living water will burst out from you, flowing from your innermost being, just like the scripture says. You see that footnote again. Um, it says, the rivers of living water will flow from his throne within. So we have this understanding that the river that we, we, we picture it outwardly, that this river of God is coming. But actually, when, he is, when we are the temple and he is enthroned, then his living water flows from the temple within. Do you see how it's always both and? We receive from him, but we give from him, but it's him in us giving. Yeah? There's so much to partner in this. I know it's layer upon layer. Roll with me. We've got other references, Psalm 46, verse 4. I didn't put it up on the slide, but I'll just show it to you. You guys okay for 15 pages this morning? We're going to be okay. It's my teeth. It's my teeth. Don't worry. Um, Psalm 46, verse 4. God has a constantly flowing river whose sparkling streams bring joy and delight to his people. His river flows right through the city. So that's Jerusalem or the church. It flows right through the city of God most high into his holy dwelling places. What's his holy dwelling places? us. He knew it then. David knew it then. All right, we've got other references. John 4, 23, 24, which I actually spoke on, leads us into the Aramaic word. Are we ready for number two? Yeah, we're going to build upon, build upon, build upon, because this isn't as didactic, is that a good word, as, as praise. We actually have to kind of sift a lot of things, and we'll it'll all come together like a beautiful jar containing our understanding at the end. We are clay. Aramaic word for worship is seged, if I say that right, which means to bow down or to surrender. Okay, we've often not understood the word surrender, so we're going to go into this with our will still engaged. Is that okay? Worship is the heart's holy exchange. We're bowing low in wonder and in devotion. We're drinking him in, but it's more a heart posture than even a physical one. Since John 4.24 reminds us that he's seeking worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, 
Revelations 11 verse 1 to 2, 1 to 2, it's actually a really important scripture, reveals that we are the temple and that we are now being measured to see if we are truly worshipping God. We live life being measured. So he wants to see if it's truth in our hearts. He needs to see the truth of worship in our hearts. We're actually being measured on that. That's where cheap grace comes in, where we go, he doesn't mind because he's forgiven me for my sins and we don't enter into worship. But worship is where he sifts and he always measures to see the truth of our heart. He longs for, there's no place you have to go to. You are the temple, but he's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit, who engage with who he is, who come into agreement with who he is and truth. Are you truthfully doing it or are you just doing it out of performance or are you doing it out of rebellion or whatever? Do we really live poor in spirit? Do we really need him? Do we believe that nothing satisfies me but you? And do we believe that he's saying the same back? There's a lot of belief. That's why I love how faith undergirds worship because we come into agreement with, we're reminded of a lot of what we believe. And so stepping into worship is so much easier when we've had this agreement and we've had our faith um, kind of awakened in front of our eyes. There's a choice there that actually stimulates our understanding and stimulates our heart into receiving the presence of God. In this exchange, we are surrendering. It's not a, um, doesn't matter how I feel, life sucks, but apparently I'm supposed to worship you. It's not that kind of surrender. It's I'm surrendering that there will be nothing between you and me. If there's offense, let's deal with it. Surrendering says, I'm not, in a, I'm not against you here, and nothing in me is against you here. Whether it's a comfort zone and a good thing, or a sin and a bad thing, nothing, nothing within me is against you. If you think of water flowing through a tube, there's no blocks, there's no stones. That's what surrendering is here. It's often used um, the wrong way, but if you can kind of pull surrender into the understanding of yielding, that's where the two go together, okay? We are offering ourselves to him to drink, honoring his longing that nothing satisfies him except for me. Psalm 5 verse 7 says, I know the way back home, and I know that you will welcome me into your house, for I'm covered by your covenant of mercy and love. So I come to your sanctuary. Where else is this sanctuary? Yeah. So I come to, uh, to your sanctuary with deepest awe to bow in worship and adore you. It's a posture in our life where we hold nothing between him and if you think of marriage or close friendships, as soon as there's something in the way the connection gets a bit fuzzy, it's on our end. He's made a way. His love is, is perfect love. He is perfect love. So if there's blockages or difficulties in this realm, there's something on our end that we need to be responsible for, which is an empowering thought because we have tools and we have prayer and we have a way. Even just giving in in the yielding when it feels a little awkward often breaks open the way but we're going to go into this some more. Is that okay? Other references are Genesis 24, 26, 1 Samuel 15, 31. They're up there. I don't have to preach them out. The Greek word. This is one I said that Matthew often speaks about. Greek word most often translated as worship is proskuneo. Should we go with that? Proskuneo, meaning to bow, to kiss the hand of, to make obeisance, reverence. Obeisance basically is, that, is whatever posture you would take out of paying homage. So it can be like your curtsy or your bow. It's where tithing comes into worship. You pay homage to a king. You give of what you have. It's, um, it's, this is where that understanding has come and where a lot of that teaching has come because worship includes every posture you would have before, before rulership, before a good king, all right? 
to bow, to kiss the hand of, to make obeisance, to show reverence. In the Old Testament, this is really, I find this fascinating. In the Old Testament, proskuneo refers to sacrifice. So you think of Genesis 22 with Abraham. You think of Exodus 24 with Moses. You think of Deuteronomy 12, there's many more. When we, we gave the sacrificial lamb or we, we had to cut how many sheep or cows or whatever before we were pure enough to enter into the holy place as, as priests. But in the New Testament, the idea of animal sacrifice is gone and replaced with submission. It's replaced with submission. It's replaced with yielding. It's placed with surrender. It's the declarations of faith, yielding to the authority of the one being worshipped. Matthew 2, Jesus' birth. Matthew 14, rescued from the storm. Luke 24, the ascension. Luke 9, Revelations 4. There's so many where they start using the same word, but it means a different thing. Isn't that so confusing, but sort of cool? Um, we also see in the Old Testament, proskuneo carries a culture of ritual. If you think about how they did it then, it was, you must offer a physical sacrifice, and you must do it at the right place, and you have to do it this, this many times, and it must be this kind of lamb. There were so many particulars, and Jesus met that mark. When he died for our sins, he was every single particular that, that there was in the Jewish law. He, he met that. He was perfect. So now in the New Testament, it's replaced with spontaneous submission. It's replaced with freedom. Freedom to submit. There's still sacrifice, but the sacrifice is you. Not, I have to cut myself and lie there bleeding. The sacrifice is, I willingly want to give myself to you. You become the offering. It's the utter submission of self to God, the yielding up of all your defenses. There's no war here. There's no argument anymore. Now, Matthew is a big believer in, in I guess, the, he was speaking to the Romans. There's a lot, there's a lot there that, that has war in it. Alexander the Great, I just wanted to teach on this because he used it so much. Alexander the Great claimed divinity himself, so he commanded people lie prostrate before him. But he had an understanding of what that posture was when you bow down, when you lie prostrate. He says prostration simply is because if you put your face to the ground, you risk your life. There's no way to escape an attack. There's no way to see if someone's coming. Prostrate is actually saying to the Lord, I totally trust you. There's no war between you and me. You're that good that I'm going to lie on my face in my yielding. Do you understand the difference? It's where his holiness is enough that I don't hold anything back, but you express it physically. The bowing is actually a posture of my guns are down. What I want from life is down. What isn't fixed and why you haven't done it yet is down. What's hurting, what's not healed physically, emotionally is down. Is down. Are we willing to yield our defenses to the one, the one and only God? All right. I'm going to step into how worship is a natural progression of praise. This is so cool. Praise is us entering in and letting the king be enthroned in our midst. Remember how we talked about it was a choice and that we declare our faith. He's enthroned in that crazy, amazing, I'm not going to be self-conscious about this adoration of who he is, but it's all choice. It's based on your faith. It's based, this is my belief and so I'm doing it. There's an, there's an action of I'm going to open the door and let him in. All right? It's your will comes into the game. 
But sadly, in the past, once we've gotten in, and I know this is not necessarily the culture of our community, but I want to teach on it to scrape anything from your history and kind of let's look at this and study it, okay? Sadly, in the past, once we've gotten in, we've, we've often not known what to do next. So we sing a couple of songs of praise. We recognize the hope that's filled our lungs. We're aware that actually God is so good, and I'm so glad I'm here with my brothers and sisters, and this is, this is good. It's rejuvenating me. I had a sucky morning, and suddenly everything's going to be okay. And we hit praise, and we hit the truth of praise, and we feel the God of the impossible in the room. And then we don't know what to do with that. So we either do nothing, or we change the order of the service, or we take the offering, or we do some announcements, and we just have a breather because we've been standing for two songs. I'm not mocking other churches. Literally, there would have been good reasons for why they felt that which should be placed, but we haven't, we haven't attempted to pursue how to work with awkward. All right? Everything that's done before is usually someone trying to do the best with what they know. But what, what, what we hit, we, we, we've kind of come into this place where we don't know what to do here, and so we've made a way to make it feel okay instead of explore worship. All right? Sometimes we actually just tune out, and we think that we're worshiping because we're soaking, and I'm a big soaking fan, but true worship isn't someone else did it for me. It's a big one because our culture in the last sort of 10 years has really moved into agreement with soaking and it's powerful and there's a place for it because it's just agreement and it just let it wash over you. Let that river wash all day. But true worship from a, this fountain comes into me and I give you my fountain, that's me participating. I love this scenario. So I mentioned this book when I was teaching on praise. I'm going to touch on a couple of example stories. She talks scenarios. I kind of slightly reworded them because she's old school language. It could kind of scare you. But this is one of the scenarios. Are you ready to kind of just imagine this with me? All right? So an example of what praise and then worship might feel like in the past. It's much like a visit to the White House to meet the president. You might make every effort to get there, going through all the proper channels to get permission, and when it's finally granted, you drive to the White House, noticing the beauty of the entrance, exclaim with awe, and after a few minutes, you're actually ushered into the Oval Office. You look around a bit amazed, and then you say, okay, um, we can go home now. Uh, I just wanted to see what it looked like. Would you walk out of the White House without taking advantage of the opportunity to meet the President, even though he'd agreed to meet with you? Yet that is actually what we do often with God. We make an effort to come into his presence, but once we arrive, we look around and say, well, that was nice. Um, bye now. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for the hope back in my bones. Why have we come? Have we come to look around or have we come to worship the king? The reason I think, this is my theory, and based on a lot of the understanding of worship and the context, and I know it's, it's acceptable in this community because of even what we do with, through Elijah House and the stuff that I think across the board throughout the world, people are learning from a position of intimacy with the Lord, but worship actually reveals relationship. Praise is opening a door, worships the conversation. And we would all know that relationship reveals us. And so when there's issues, there's issues, and we need to deal with it. So the awkward is inevitable because now it's person to person. It's not reality to reality. It's person to person. 
And as deep and as awkward as this sounds, our hearts delight in this place. We're made to delight in it. It's actually innate. So as we practice this posture, it actually becomes a lifestyle of friendship where we can meet with him anywhere. This is the whole reality of intimacy is that we live a lifestyle of worship is because a heart can meet him anywhere, anytime. You can drink from him and offer him a drink wherever. This is his desire. This is holy friendship. Worship is you shut away with God in the middle of the most busiest shopping mall. Even though things may be happening around you and it can be chaos, you can actually close yourself in with him. There's a relationship with the king where you can tie in. This is worship. But true friendship is grown and strengthened most, not just with passing each other in a shopping mall or having a chat in the car, squeezing hands, high-fiving, texting, or giving quick hugs. Look at the parallels. Think about how relationships develop here. It's always through quality time. It's through fellowship. Most of us don't know how to spend quality time in the presence. Maybe we find that this deeper place is a little bit awkward, which I'm going to touch on a bit later. So we spend time praying for the nations, which is good, or we pray for our neighbors, or we pray for the church and minister there. We believe that we believe God to do, and we like the feeling of doing with God, so that's how we fellowship. But we don't know how, or we don't have the time to be. This morning, we, uh, we touched on being. And the reality of being with God is there's no order of service. There's no knowing what the conversation might hold. There's no logic sometimes. And sometimes in our own private world, there's no songs with words that are going to help us along. And when you find that you're in a place of worship, those songs can actually become distracting from what he's wanting to say. So sometimes no songs is better. When you want to do relationship with God... The big part about yielding is you stop dictating what you want to see and what you want to happen and how it should happen. And you agree to him igniting the conversation and revealing what he wants to reveal. That's the surrender, is that you give him your time and you have no cooking clue how that time's going to go. It doesn't feel as rewarding when you start as it does to do a successful job, hammer a nail, send an email, Look after your kids. It doesn't have the same feeling, but as you posture yourself in the practice of this, you start to notice that this is the source of all you're doing. Here's another great scenario, an example of how worship is a natural progression of praise from the same book. I see the difference between praise and worshiping as if I were part of Palm Sunday procession. Everyone knows Palm Sunday? Jesus comes riding in on a donkey? Okay. Back in the day, they thought Jesus is coming. He's going to overthrow the throne. He is the ruler. He's the new king. So excited. So she sees the difference between praising and worshiping as if we were part of the Palm Sunday procession. If you need to shut your eyes, shut your eyes. Imagine you were there. I join an exceptionally large crowd gathering and carpeting the road in preparation for Jesus with our cloaks and prayer shawls. Others are cutting down branches from trees to spread in his path. And I can see in the distance Jesus riding on, on a on a donk on a donkey? On a donkey, okay, in the center of a huge procession. And crowds are going before him and crowds are coming behind him and they're all shouting, just as I'm shouting, and my friends are shouting, and we're saying, Bring on the victory! Yay! Jesus has come. We're boasting in him. 
And as Jesus comes closer my way and enters Jerusalem and the people and all become wild with excitement, the entire city is thrown into an absolute uproar. It is crazy. It continues on this way until it passes directly in front of me. And then it stops. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who's come to rescue us, is sitting on a humble donkey, and he stops, and he looks at me. He says my name. I can hear it. Somehow, above all the craze, I can hear his voice, and, he's, and he says my name again. And tears, they just start to burn and brim, and my ears begin to burn, and then my throat dries, and I whisper, Lord, and he smiles as I respond, and in the same moment as I speak, he replies with, I love you. And tears stream down my cheeks as I reply, I love you. Now, I'm no longer waving my palm. I'm, I'm no longer dancing with my friends and shouting Hosanna. I'm, I'm bowing down on the inside and, and worship and saying, Lord and Lord, and words are fumbling out my mouth, and it seems like the crowd is not even present. In reality, the multitude is still there all around me. Others are still yelling and singing, shouting their praises, but I'm oblivious to what is happening around me. Because in this moment, I know that the love of eternity is being poured into my soul. In this moment, I'm learning how much he loves me. And it doesn't make sense, but I'm just discovering how much I deeply, deeply love him. Somewhere in me is this love. I'm face to face with his majesty in a way I've never known before. Nobody has to tell me he's the king. I know it. And, and I'm worshiping him. I, I, I have to get down. I have to bow. I have to recognize his position as his wave after wave of love for me flows down. It's pretty cool, eh? Quality time with him becomes a washing of his feet and his washing mine. We're describing our love for who he is, and he's describing his love for me. But it's not about what he's done, which is a lot of what we do in praise. It's not what he's going to do, which is a lot of what we do in praise. He reminds us of who we are and the beauty of his holiness. That being is, is about knowing that you're knowing, known and enjoying knowing him just as he is. It's about who he is, not what he's doing. The reality of the being and about the who, he knows who you are and you know who he is, is that expectation disappears. You don't have a job to do. And he doesn't have a job to do. He's him. You're you. I love this perspective because I believe this is how worshipping corporately actually works. Um, one of the visions from one of her colleagues said that they saw a multitude of people approaching the throne of God. Multitudes were coming in for praise. Multitudes were coming from all over the nations in worship, and he wondered if there'd be room for him as well to just come near the throne. He found himself getting closer and closer, but when he got to the throne and he fell down in worship and adoration, he glanced around and was conscious that no one else was actually there, and it was just him and the Lord. That's how corporate worship is possible. The crowds disappear and it's you and Jesus.
the beauty of the body doing it is that you can still hear the body, but you know that the body is doing exactly the same thing. That's why it's so powerful. It's because all of you are having one-on-one with Jesus at the same time. The secret of worship is how it differs from praise. We can do a lot of praise to a slow song. The secret of worship is how it differs from praise. When I praise the Lord, I will to praise. When I enter his gates, I offer lambs from my lips. I bring thanksgiving. It's an expression of my faith. I choose and I will to praise. But you do not will to worship. That's why you praise till the spirit of worship comes. Sometimes it's two minutes, sometimes it's 20. Sometimes it's two hours. You do not will to worship. The spirit of worship comes into the room. Worship comes upon you. Water rushes in. It's not that we look for a feeling. It's that we enter into a reality. It's really important. You're still not being dictated by your feelings. But you notice a shift in the room. You notice the awareness of his presence. And you enter into a reality. We are in his place, in his presence, and he is with us. You don't will to worship, but you respond in worship through yielding. You're able to worship because faith opened a door, but continual worship comes with, I'm in this, I'm in this, I'm in this 100%. You can shut the door on worship if we refuse to yield. Praise never leaves. The reason that it can be so sweet is because faith has remained. It's still completely rooted in our belief of who he is. That never leaves. That's why we can discern when it's the truth, when we're having visions. It's all rooted in truth. But you enter into worship because it comes upon you. It wells up from within. This is where wordy songs aren't really necessary. In fact, they can become a hindrance. Simple is okay. Here's where we're often left stumped anyway. (laughs) Remember, when it's about being with each other, it's actually not to talk about the bills or about the problems or about the chaos. In worship, we're simply overwhelmingly enjoying each other's presence. We're bowing in full reverence, letting go of all of our defenses, and words are often few. It's often just sounds of delight and sounds of glorifying him. Sounds can often be wordless, full of wanting more. This is a banquet. This is the feasting time, and we become a banquet for him. Let's look at that, John 4, 32. I didn't have it up on the slides, don't worry. John 4 has got so much on this. It's so good to read John 4. John 4, we talked about the thirsty Savior before in John 4, and we're going on to John 4, 32. He says, the harvest is ready. Teacher, you must eat something. And Jesus told them, don't worry about me. I've eaten a meal you don't even know about. The footnote there, it's a play on words, it's Aramaic. Jesus Jesus isn't using the common word for food, he's actually using a word that means nutrients. It's also a homonym, homonym, um, that is more commonly translated as kingdom. But when we read this, Jesus has a kingdom feast that no one else knows about. He feasts upon the devotion of his bride. That's what he's referring to. In the kingdom, I feast on the devotion of my bride. And it literally says here, this is what I call, see Song of Solomon 4.15, which we read before, the church is truly the woman at the well. Huh. 
which is where we started. We talked about the woman at the well. Here in the footnotes, it says feast, and then it says the church is truly the woman at the well. There's such a linking in. The footnotes really help you see connection in Scripture. He feasts upon the devotion of his bride. But you need to remember that it's, it, that our devotion needs to be only for him. Think of it. Think of what we just talked about. We talked about Palm Sunday. We put all our cloaks down. He's ridden on through. What did he do once he came into Jerusalem? He entered the temple and he turned over the tables and he said, my house will be a house of prayer for all nations. So you need to know that where there is true worship, there is always a cleaning out. You are the temple. If you invite him in, you need to know that mercy reigns. There's always a cleaning out. Thank goodness. I want to be cleaned out all the time. There's no compromise with God. He's not acceptable with another God sitting at the table while you eat. True worship is often on your knees because there's repentance involved. And thankfully, because mercy's new every day, you can repent every day. But true worship is about getting truthful about what's really going in your heart. It's extraordinarily humbling and it's redeeming. Because worship transforms us. It's meant to be a raw place of truth. It's meant to be an honest relationship, not a practice. It's an honest relationship, not a religious practice. It's an honest relationship. It's not a song. It's an honest relationship. It's not the sound of nice guitars playing. It's not lights. It's not smoke. It's an honest relationship. It's an honest relationship. Who feels that maybe we could do an honest relationship? Yeah? It's an honest relationship. Who knows through even a lot of the teachings through Elijah House that we can learn and we can be equipped and there's ministry for an honest relationship. There's a way. Yes? We have help. Another way to view the difference between praise and worship is that praise starts with faith, but worship starts with sight. This is really important. So a lot of this context I got from David Fritch, the other book that I've mentioned, Enthroned. We're still selling it at the back. If you're interested, I highly recommend. If you think of the seraphim, which means burning ones, the seraphims um, in Revelations, they're in heaven. They're four beasts with wings, and they have eyes all over their bodies. And their eternal occupation is to never rest day or night saying, holy, holy, holy. Revelations 4 verse 8. Did you ever stop to ask? I'm just going to read it like he's written it. Did you ever stop to ask, why do they have eyes all over their body? What purpose does that serve? God made every creature with the necessary equipment and faculties to fulfill their purpose. Fish have gills. Lions have speed and ferocity to live off what they hunt. Seraphim were created to lead worship eternally in heaven. So they were given eyes all around. They had eyes to see into different realms, into different times, into different facets of who God is. They also saw in the future and in the past. Don't you love that? In front and behind. That may seem strange unless we've grasped that worship starts with the gift of sight. 
When we see the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of the eternal God, it awakens worship. See how when we praise, we come into agreement with all he is, we start to see. When we see him, we're compelled to worship. See how it's no longer a choice, but it comes upon us because we see. The more we see, the more we worship. As we agree in faith, the Holy Spirit reveals to us the invisible God. However, in heaven, God is completely visible and unveiled before all. The seraphim have the high honor of continuously hovering before the open flame of the majesty and the glory of the uncreated God. No wonder they're called the burning ones. So they draw in with multiple eyes, seeing more than most, and come away singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which causes a chain reaction of praise throughout heaven. All the hosts of heaven begin to sing, the 24 elders bow, you know the scenario. What does this remind you of? I'll give you a tip. David, when establishing the tabernacle of worship, replicated this heavenly setup by appointing prophetic music leaders. He understood that if he was, they were going to lead worship, they would need to see. So the leaders would sing out something and the congregation would come into agreement. Seraphim would sing, holy, 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 and all of heaven would come into agreement. If we see him, we cause agreement in our gut. It comes into agreement. When we see and we declare, we can speak it over our whole being, come into agreement. He understood that sight was needed. Personally, it's the same we are the temple. The gift of prophecy, which is, we should all desire to have, is actually primarily to reveal the glory of God to our own human heart, not just to others. It's the gift of sight, the gift of hearing, the gift of sensing. We cannot see him or know him purely by observation. Tons of reading the word or books doesn't reveal him. It's the Holy Spirit who reveals him to us. We are very dependent on the Holy Spirit to open our spiritual eyes. Put your hands over your eyes. Let's do it. Put your hands over your eyes. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you now to open our eyes to see. Lord, if there's anything that has been misused in this realm where we've sought out other things to see, to cause peace and to cause pleasure, we just repent. Lord, we pray that you would, by your mercy, cover our eyes with your blood that we would see as you desire us to see, that you would allow us to see as you've called us to see, that we would believe, that our faith would rise, that amidst chaos we would see and we would know that it is you. You've designed us to see, and so we can trust the faculties you've given us to do what they're designed to do. So, Lord, we just say, open our eyes. And we place our hands on our ears, Lord, and we say, open our ears. The sheep hear and know the voice of the shepherd. You've designed our ears to hear you, God. So we say even now, God, open our ears where we've filled them with doubt and lies and gossip and slander. Lord, we've, we've come into agreement with the word of the, the nation, the word of the land, things in the airwaves. And so, God, we repent and we yield our ears to your voice again that we would hear your voice like a rushing river over every bit of chaos that the Western world provides, every bit of um, chanting and noise and history and anger and violence, Lord, that we would hear your voice. And we would know we can trust in these faculties because we've given them to you, we've yielded them to you, we've yielded them to you as our act of worship. We would know it's you, we can trust you, Jesus, that you would speak and we would hear. In Jesus' name. It's really important that we don't live on earth 
just on earth. We need to live on earth as it is in heaven. Got to yield those faculties all the time. Be in a posture of just letting the blood of Jesus wash. Wash, wash, wash. We're all called as prophets. We're all called as kings and priests. Priests who see God. We're called to see. And though we lean lean on each other, I don't believe that he gives some kids just eyes and some kids just ears. We've all got them and all of them. So I want to touch on two aspects of him that I believe are constantly in the foreground when we begin to see him and drink from him in worship. So for those of you who are like new to faith or new to seeing, I want to give you two aspects of him that you can kind of go, hey, I think I'm feeling this or seeing this and I can lean into it because Rachel's just explained biblically how this works. Is that all right? I want to give you confidence in what you're seeing and what you're sensing. Um, Number one, I want to I emphasize, it's been the whole way through what I've te- taught today, but I want to emphasize worshiping the king. I want to emphasize worshiping majesty, all right? Psalm 24, 8 to 10. You ask, God, who is this glory king? Ah, oh, you ask. The Lord armed and ready for battle, the mighty one, invincible in every way. So wake up, you living gateways, and rejoice. Fling wide, you ageless doors of destiny. Here he comes, the king of glory is ready to come in. And you ask, who is the king of glory? He is the Lord of victory, armed and ready for battle, the mighty one, the invincible commander of heaven's host. He is the king of glory. When we enter into praise and we open the door, you see even here um, the footnote on A, the Hebrew text says, lift up your heads, which is a figure of speech for rejoicing, the choice to rejoice. We are the living gateways who rejoice as the Lord draws near to us from his temple. When we open the gate, when we lift up our heads and rejoice in him, regardless of our circumstances, who is this glory that comes in? He's the Lord of victory. Praise is always the sound of victory. Always. Always. Praise is always the sound of victory. You cannot separate them. He's the Lord of victory, armed and ready for battle, the mighty one, the invincible commander of heaven's hosts. He's the king of glory. We want to understand that we can see this king. This is where we're going mystical, and it's so okay. Just lean in with me, all right? If you're sensing him or seeing him, so even today there's this sweetness in the room. I always describe it as sweetness. He comes with sweetness. Even in power, he comes with sweetness. If you're sensing like a sweetness in the room, Um, when your praise has been an offering, when you've given an offering of praise and then you just feel like the breath comes back in your lungs. It's like a, when you sense the sweetness in the room, when you feel like I don't have to stir up my agreement any longer, there's just, there's just a yes. When, when, when that comes, when, but you're not kind of sure what it all to do or that, that's that awkward place where should we sit down and do the offering speech, it's that place. You can bet on always finding him in his majesty always finding him in his majesty. When we begin worshiping, some of the first visions we have, when we actually start to see or hear or actually sense his nature, their visions are often begin at his feet. Listen to me. Some of the first visions you have will be visions at his feet. Some of you have never seen before. Some of the first visions you'll have are visions at his feet. You can always find his feet. Earth is his footstool. You can always find his feet. You can always find his feet. Vision often begins at his feet. Why? Because we're humbled enough to get there. This is why when I feel worship enter the room, but I'm struggling to sense him or get direction or to see what he's doing, I often get on my knees. I step into vision by bowing at his feet. 
if you're just wondering what he's doing, I encourage you to bow. If you're wanting to see him, I encourage you to get down on your knees, low before the Lord, call him lovely, and vision will come because it's the right posture before a king. It's a holy, righteous posture. Vision often comes at his feet because it's such a real reality. It's an easy one to grasp amidst all our dysfunction on the inside. Unless you have a supreme issue with politics or leadership, which please deal with, you can usually find king in his majesty. It's not, it's not the same as finding a dad or a brother or a lover. Finding a king in his majesty is a little bit more approachable, believe it or not, in all his holiness. It doesn't have the discord in the heart. So vision can come. All right, there's not a block. Does that make sense? Get on your knees. Don't make this about you and he has to do it for you. Get on your knees. When we see his feet, we worship there. There's enough just at his feet to be outpouring in worship because of what we see. The reality is what we see shouldn't be our story. Western society says, see and let's see some more because I love movies and I love seeing where they go and let's go there. Vision with the Lord is I yield my eyes and you'll move this at your pace and you'll show me what you want, and I might have to stay here a long time. My encouragement to you is to magnify what you see. Become a sleuth. Get out your little magnifying glass at his feet and look at it with detail. You will see the nature of God before you if you're willing to look at it. But if you want him to hurry up and tell you the story, you'll miss it. It takes slowing down and delighting. It takes being and not putting the agenda before him. Does that make sense? It really takes not being a people pleaser and not being time orientated. I think he's worthy of that. That's what yielding your eyes and yielding your time looks like. I think time is one of our biggest sacrifices these days. We can wash our feet with, his, with our tears when we're there. It, it comes out. He's put it in you and it comes out. We wash his feet with our tears. Remember, everyone else is doing one-to-one. You don't really need to care about that. It's about your posture before a king and what comes out, what your yes keeps coming through as, what your I'm in this and I'll wait here and I'm going to look upon you keeps coming out. Something comes out because he's put it in there. Sometimes you've got to let that crack open, but he's put it there. We begin to know him in his kingly position. It's never been without fathering, and it's never been without friendship. He is not incredible in power and distant. But in this posture, it's full of majesty. It's full of glory, and it's full of him being able. He is able. We understand kingdom authority when we're in this position, how he unselfishly invites us to become partners with him in the kingdom. It's an empowering place to be down on your knees. There's a realm in God so great that even though you may have come with a dozen needs and requests after worship, when he asks, was there something you wanted to say? You reply, no. Everything has been satisfied. King of majesty's presence, if not the father or the shepherd or the friend, but king of majesty's presence still satisfies every need. That we no longer come with our list. If we're truly just upon in his presence and gazing upon him, we walk away satisfied. In his presence, what seemed very high and significant, significant becomes very small in comparison to his greatness. It's not that it doesn't matter. We just realize that he can handle anything. 
See why it's important to live from the fountain? In the same breath, things that we think are less significant, maybe our own hearts or Australia or Israel, these can be seen as hugely significant as he shows us his true concerns and what he wants on the top of our list. That posture is where glory hits because now you've entered his heart. This is the power of worship. We become like what we see. So I can sit down and read every book on holiness and I might develop some really good concepts, but I can worship for a minute and feel his holiness and know what it is. Now I can also study holiness and feel frustration. I want to apply it and get even angry about it. But when I worship, I find I just desire to be like him and I become holy. See how it transforms? Knowing him as the king in his power means giving him our struggles and problems, receiving the great encounter we see in the book of Revelation of the king in glory coming for his bride. <sighs> the bride that knows him. He fights our battles, the Lord of hosts, mighty in battle. Revelation 1.16. Um, I won't go into it, but First Peter 2.9, where he talks about how we're a chosen priesthood. And he talks about, the first line is, you are God's chosen treasure. And when you read the footnote on that, he talks about how he's a king and how he treasures his jewels. It's really powerful to understand you're a treasure jewel before a very, very powerful and glorious king. Go read it. All right, the second one, I just want to make sure we hit this before 12. Worshipping the beloved. Everybody look back at me, don't worry, I can see the clock. Um, I'm very conscious of the clock, I love kids. Okay, worshipping, and your lunch. Worshipping the beloved. So I'm jumping from kingly and least awkward connection to the most awkward connection you can probably hit, and that's okay. I need to do it all and let you figure out the bits in between because every single part of this is important, but I don't want to leave it out just because it's awkward. I'm, I'm touching on it because I want to give you tools for breakthrough, okay? Worshiping the beloved, intimacy. Worship is like developing a relationship. When we first begin, we may see his feet. It's the feet of God, and we come into awareness of his majesty. We realize that he's a king, and he's good, and he's here, and we might just be overcome by awe, and that is the great place to be, and I'm often led there, and I always want to be there. It's important to see him in all his power. But as our faith grows and as our heart becomes more tender, he can turn a rock into running water. He did that for me. Let that be a testimony to any of you. I was as hard as stone, and he turned me into flowing water. It's possible, okay? As our hearts become tender, as our seeing expands, as we trust him in this place, as our openness and our yes continues, relationship grows, and we move from feet to face. We become face-to-face -face dwellers. And when I talked on praise, I talked on seeing being the language for all those senses, and I talked on face being not just that you literally see a face, but you understand and grasp a deeper nature of Jesus. Sometimes it is that you see what seems like the face of God, but a lot of the times it's an outline or a, a, a depiction of him or it's an element of who he is. That's what we talk about face-to-face, -face, where we're getting to know him personally. It's an, much more about an engagement and a connection. Heart-to-heart -heart can be put just in the same place as face-to-face, -face, okay? Knowing him as king is glorious, but he wants to take us further. He wants us to know him not only as king and shepherd and friend, but as the heavenly bridegroom. It's in the Bible. <laughs> he wants us to know him as the beloved. He's the lover of our souls, but beloved actually means that he is who our souls delight in. We often come into this grace and this mercy because he's a lover of our souls, but he wants to be known as the beloved. 
He wants to be known as the one our souls delight in. When we worship, we are pouring out our hearts to him. We are pouring out our love on him. We're learning through Psalms and especially Song of Solomon that God wants every one of our senses to be alive. He wants our emotions. He doesn't want them to be suppressed. He wants you to be thrilled by the sound of his voice. He wants you to be moved deeply by the touch of his hand. He wants you to be full of awe and wonder at the sight of him in your midst. And he wants you to be deeply moved by his presence as he comes near. He loves romance. Here's the deal. I don't know if you've learned, probably through the Lamb course, some of you would have learned um, marriage and intimacy, and I'm not like the professional at this by any means, but one of the things they teach on is that the epitome of marriage isn't sex, and it's not even a good conversation and deep conversation. It's not what satisfies the woman and what satisfies the man. It's that you're both willing to come into it and say, I'm going to give and I'm going to die to self. Again, I'm not the queen at this. But when the Lord says, this is how I want you to come, that's our posture is I want to give and I want to die to self. That's what creates the deepest connection in your marriage is if you're both okay to give and die to self. We often are like, I don't, don't know how to do picturing consummation. <laughs> What's that look like with Jesus and how can we be the bride? And we're trying to figure it all in our natural mind and yet that's not what he's asked for. Even in our marriage, he's asked for that we'd come into it to give and to die to self. A woman likes it some, a certain way, a man likes it another. We would love to meet with God the way we meet with each other on earth. That would be great. Jesus, could you just do that for me? But it's not how it is right now. But he has a desire and a way for you to meet with him, and it's in spirit. And he's just saying, can you give and can you die to self and do what means something to me? I'm the king of glory. I can meet all your needs, but can you love me the way I need you to love me? Do you understand? The way we come to him in prayer, in worship and in praise is because we're going, this is how you want to be loved, which always is beneficial to me. But we're understanding the give and the die to self. Because worship is spiritual, and it's, but it's still relationship, we, we can often step into worship and find that our hearts are numb, unmoved, we're blind in our senses or we're too busy trying to figure it out in our heads. There's possibly some stuff on the way on our end, like I've mentioned. So I want to touch on a couple. I'm not going to expand on them. I'm not going to teach on them, but I'm going to touch on them because if they light something up in you, then you have a little ticket that says, yay, let's go deal with this. All right? So I'm turning a light on with you. We can celebrate responsibility. Okay? Some of the realities is theology, previous church experience, etc., may not have encouraged intimacy with the Holy Spirit or that the Holy Spirit is for today you've missed out because that was the gift that he said I'm going away that you'd have and it's better than me it's the Holy Spirit you may have been taught that relationship in the church is what you can do for God or what you can do to God and these were your acts of love is to do for him and to give to him um, maybe the gifts of the spirit were for others but they weren't also something that you could benefit for yourself and him understanding how when he speaks through you he's also speaking to you it's an amazing amazing time of connection when you minister to other people and you feel intimacy at the same time testify to that I, I would see pictures and pray for people when I was 14 15 I had no connection with the Lord in my heart I was heart of stone but I could pick I could see pictures and pray for people and yay gifts when the Lord woke my heart up and I started seeing things for others I was wrecked 
because he was speaking to me, to someone else, and we would have a whole other conversation in the background while I was speaking to someone else. It is a completely different thing when you come into agreement with intimacy, when you yield to knowing him above ministering to others. Okay? It makes it less work, more play. This is so big. Um, An intimate relationship is grown primarily from fellowship. It's not about doing. So if it's four and two, you've missed it. It's lovely, but it's not what it's about. It's about being. Ultimately, worship becomes an expression of love. Of love. It's in me and I give it. It's a desire for connection. This can really expose performance orientation. Everybody go, yay. We, we, have, we have tools for that. We have ministry for that. We can find the root. He wants to find the root. He wants connection. Don't make it that it's just these relationships that hold you accountable to do relationship well. This one is more important. This one's more important. If you're disconnected from your heart, if relationship... Is relationship is more in the heart than it is in the head. We, we sift what our heart is communicating with our head. We don't do relationship from here, okay? Um, that means the heart needs to be able to do deep fellowship and connection, so it needs to be awake. This is where, uh, we even did it in the prayer time as a sort of a tease with Grant, but this is where we even encourage people in prayer ministry. We just say, Jesus, I just give you permission right now to speak to me, not from where I'm comfortable up here, but to speak to me from my heart. And we do it physically. And people sit the rest of the prayer time with their hand on their heart. don't know if you've noticed often in worship, it's subconscious, but I'm often like this and I'll tap it because I'm like, this is where it's coming from. I know it's coming from here. It's coming from here, and and in doing this, something in me is engaging with, like, my heart is engaging with your heart. I often remind myself, without even knowing I'm reminding myself, that this is where it comes from. This is the the pit of my well. All right? Everybody, put your hand on your head. Jesus, I give you permission. Jesus, I give you permission. Jesus, I give you permission. Thank you for everything that we've come to understand up here, but I give you permission to lead me into my heart. Let's put our hands on our hearts. Jesus, I give you permission to communicate from my heart that I would hear it in all its roar and all its, in all its strange expressions that can maybe scare me. It's like trying to tame a wild dragon. But Lord, if I don't meet you here, it just gets wilder. So Lord, let's, let's calm the storm in here. Let's calm the storm in here. I would give you permission to meet with me in here. I don't want to avoid this place because it's scary or it doesn't make sense. I want to meet with you here where you've designed it. If this is the place, if you're the lover of my soul, if you're the keeper of my heart, then I want to meet with you in, in the temple. I want to meet with you here. Amen? We need to give him permission in doing this right now, it may reveal that you need to desire it. Sometimes when we're numb, we just don't even feel desire. So we often have to ask for desire. I actually am in a season in my own life, seeing things even in our marriage, where I'm just saying, Lord, give me the will to want that. 
Give me the, help my will to long for that. I am just, I can see where there's walls, but I don't want the wall there. And so I'm praying, like massage my will to there. I don't want to whip it and I don't want to bend it and I don't want to treat it like you would, you would never treat me that way. So I'm asking you, woo my will. I want my will to come into agreement with this. I want to learn to die even more like that. It's not a whipping and a cutting. It's a, I just want to love like you love. I want to love like you love. I want the reward of loving like you love. It's so worth it, but I I want my will to come into agreement with it, all right? So we we can minister to ourselves. We can call it in. We can call the angels to massage our things into place. But it also could require prayer ministry, and it could require fasting. This is why fasting is so amazing and important. It actually um, increases our sensitivity to the Spirit, and it develops a keenness, and it reveals our need, all right? So fasting can be a really good one, especially if you've been plundering other things to feed. Just fast and start again. It's okay. Yay, mercy. All right. And you'll go through levels. You'll go through deep places with the Lord, and you'll learn a fast is another realm. It's not like you just do it at the start and then you've met him. You just do realms of fasting. You do realms of increased need because this continual river is always flowing, and you always want to be thirsty. You always want to be thirsty. So if thirst is stopped... Fasting's possibly necessary, prayer ministry's possibly necessary, or a, will, a praying a will into your heart. I want to thirst for the king. I want to thirst for this. Just start ministering to your spirit and calling it forward. There are things in the airwaves that want to shut it down. We are in war all the time, so you want to just minister to your spirit and pull it out. Have worship on all the time. We need to see, hear, smell, taste, and unction his presence. Some other blockages can be biological relationships. As soon as we come into the understanding of him as a father, or as our lover, as our friend, biological relationships, and because it's relationship and he's so sensory, if there's been a lack in that way or if there's been inappropriateness, if there's been abuse, not just verbal, physical, if there's been anything like that, it doesn't just come into things here. It comes into things here because he meets with us in our senses in a way as if you are physical, not we talk kisses and stuff, but there are sensations and there are agreements that we can come into where we experience the reality of who he is that those things can block. If we've got wounds in those areas, they need to be healed for our relationship with the Lord, not just with others, okay? If there's judgments that you've made on this regard or even with authority figures, they need to be repented of. They need to be ministered from. He knows exactly where they started. He has a heart for you in those places, but you're the one who's put it up and said, this is between you and me subconsciously, years ago, but it's there and it needs to be broken, it needs to be ministered to, it needs to be healed so that that water can flow beautifully. Sometimes when I just let my all, I feel those things break anyway. There's a place where you go, I'm just going to pour my ointment out. And that gets ministered to, it gets changed on the inside. But if you're finding that it's just not breaking, then there's places there for ministry. Prayer ministry. If there's been self-rejection, which often lends to suicide, if there's been unworthiness that's rooted in shame, like I've had a high level of unworthiness, it's still stuff I work through, but that unworthiness leads me to Jesus. I like find his feet very easily because I'm just not worthy. Like it's not righteous, but it makes it easy to come to him. If you've got an unworthiness that says, I cannot be near him, I'm so, there's a problem because that's not true. His blood paid the price. Every day, every decision, his blood was enough. So there's ministry for you there, and there's lies that need to come off. There's agreements that need to be broken. If you have pride, this was my other one, and still another one I keep working on for eternity long. If there is pride, you are blind. 
If, you're, if there is pride, you think the problem is on his end or you think that you've got enough of everything already. If there's bitterness, these are walls, they're beliefs that are, they're reasonings, but they're between the heart and between him. And he's done everything on his end. If these highlight anything, yay, please get ministry, please talk to your life hub. Enter into some worship this week and just ask the Lord to reveal even like, what is my issue here? Let him speak to you. And it just, it's so important not to miss out on your main source of life because you'll abuse every other thing for it. You'll abuse your marriage, you'll abuse your kids, you'll abuse your job, you'll abuse your friendships if you're looking for a source outside of Jesus. You'll abuse your own heart, you'll abuse, because he is the only fountain that won't run dry. No one else can meet that need. And you need, whether you feel it or not, you need. It's how you're made. You need, and you are made to need Jesus. Nothing else is going to fill that. Nothing else. It is so important to take responsibility of what it is to worship him in truth. This is the truth factor. Okay, when the heart is awakened, even just in part because it's a journey, we know it's awakened because when the breath of God blows on it, in that moment, there's an immediate response on our part. It's just the way we're made. It is an immediate response. You'll feel a yes. You'll feel a shift. So if you're not feeling that feeling, there's something to talk about within your life hubs. If you are feeling that feeling, that's the place where we come into agreement and we magnify. We just yield to it. We give ourselves to it. It awakens and unfolds. You will hear, I love you, or you'll hear, wow, or you'll hear tongues or tears or smiles, I adore you, or you're so beautiful, will have to come out. That is what the river sounds like. It's what he's saying over you. It comes out. David encourages us to, that our mouth is the pen of the ready writer. It is a good thing to pour out a sound from your lips. It is by singing that we are created. We need to give voice back to Jesus. Tongues is really good for this. I, I tell you, when I'm heart to heart with the Lord, we often just talk in tongues, and it's messy. But you know what? He knows my heart better than I do, and if I'm trying to find language for it, I get stumped. That's just not my gift set. It's Amy's. It's amazing. It's not mine. So... I've found that that's okay, and he's going to keep giving me language from my heart. But in the meantime, he will actually, it's like he pulls a string, and I just do tongues, and he pulls every part of my heart before him. He wants all of it, and he'll just pour it out. And you've got to be okay with, like, I don't get it, but I know I'm giving it. I don't understand what's going on, but I know I'm giving it. And he, he ministers, and he fills that place, and he makes it holy, and he makes it okay. But we need to not withhold it because we don't understand. The yielding is the worship. It's the giving it over, all right? This is where we realize we can be like Mary, breaking open her perfume at Jesus' feet. When you and I worship, we are unstopping our bottles of perfume and pouring them out, so let's never be skimpy. Don't give him just a dab or two. Don't anoint his ankles. Don't reserve your energy or your affection. Be lavish. Be generous. Let's let, let love flow out of the depths of our being. We should, as worshipers, leave a time of corporate worship, get in our car and go, maybe nothing's changed, but I know that I gave everything to Jesus afresh today. Never miss a moment to be lavish upon him. He creates deep worship in us and he wants to awaken your heart to love. He can do the work. We need to yield. True worship is 
that unrestrained heart connection offering. We must be able to go from, from this place of prayer and give him everything because he delights those in those who delight in him, in who he is and not just what he does for us. So don't be afraid of intimacy. Don't be afraid of it because it's so unknown and because it's exposing. Don't be afraid of it because remember he's good and he's kind. Like I said, you'll always notice him because it's sweet. He just does everything with sweetness. He just does. Even when he's telling you, mm, this isn't okay, it's full of sweetness. It's not like any of the negative experiences and abusive experiences. Everything he does is covered with milk and honey. It's just the kingdom. It's how he moves. It is so powerful and righteous and holy and we can tremble, but it's always milk and honey. It's always palatable. The Song of Solomon, the relationship goes from king to shepherd to lover of her soul to beloved. Get to know him in all these ways. Don't miss out on the glory. We talk of the glory as, as the air of heaven, but the, the true glory is actually a depth we agreed to. You can experience the air of heaven or you can experience the depth of his heart. I think we've dictated it. We've been like, let's give us the laughing river. Let's give us the diamonds. We've kind of gone, that must be what it is. But actually in our yielding, he can reveal his heart to you. That's a very rich place. It's an indescribable place. It's a powerful place. Don't miss the glory because you're not willing to yield in worship. I'm going to close because it's 12. I wanted to play a couple of songs. What are people's needs? Do you need to go or you're right for five minutes? What should we do? Kids? But there's kids. I need to be respectful of kids, people with kids. I might just close and I can so sucky people yeah people with kids can go get their kids and I'll just close so it'll just be summarizing quickly and then we're going to play two songs and we're not going to sing them as such you might know one not the other but the two songs are really powerful because the one song you kind of can start to recognize the sweetness of the spirit of worship entering it's one of my favorites it's pretty old it's pretty short it's just a free worship thing but what I love about it is I become aware of the spirit of worship in this song it just gets me every time and I believe that it's for this room it's for us it's a blessing and then the other one we're very familiar with you're welcome to it but my encouragement is that we're going to do them all if you can on our knees because we can find his feet and we can go from there you can stand up halfway through you can do whatever but if you physically are able can I encourage us that we start this on our knees is that all right is that okay you you are more than welcome to lie flat on your face to just I just thought we would practice bowing because all three interpretations say getting low, being prostrate, or being on our knees. So let's discover what we find if we do that. Is that all right? I feel there's been praise in the room, so I know that we can, we can minister and meet him. So remember, it's worship that brings forth the glory. God's ultimate desire is that the glory of the Lord covers the sea, covers the earth like the waters cover the sea. So when, when we feel we're kind of ready, I'm just going to let the people go. Remember the Father is seeking worshipers that you and I need to respond to the heart of the Father and worship Him in spirit and truth. We need to die to self and reap the reward of His fullness. We need to understand that worship is deep, stepping very low into the well and offering our worship, offering our water, and He offers His. It's a real sweet place. You don't have to feel exhausted before you start. He's going to lead you in it. If it reveals things, don't get upset if you're like, this is just numb for me, it's just like, yay, I've got a ticket. I'm going to talk to people about this. I'm going to get help. There's going to be change. But if you give everything in it, 
sometimes change comes anyway. So, are you all right with this? Are we all right with this? Are we going to, at this point in time, we are crossing over a threshold. So, most of you will feel like either cool or you'll feel like, oh God, breathe, or I'm falling asleep, or we're crossing over a threshold. So, spiritually, right now, we're going to do something that nothing on this earth wants us to do except for maybe creation. So, but spiritually, what's under heaven does not agree with this right now. So what we're going to do is meet with him and connect with him and it will be a choice in the moment of the bending of the knee and from then on we'll let Jesus lead us. But you need to acknowledge that you're at war in this very moment in your posture, okay? It's very sweet, but it's also war. And if it's been war for you for years, you probably need to acknowledge that this is a gift for you and Satan doesn't want you to have this place because it's probably a place of high power for you and so you need to get it back. You need to get it back. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This is a no-shame zone. He has given us a gift of living water. Okay? God, we just thank you for courage. Just as we've listened and learned and even hearing it, when I'm speaking it, hearing it again myself, God, I just thank you that you give us courage to give everything to you, to be living in the Western world, but to still give everything, every expression, we wouldn't hold it back because of our culture or our upbringing or our wounds, God, but we would take responsibility to give you the love you desire, to give and to die to self. Thank you that you're the fountain that doesn't run dry and your water means we never thirst again. And there's revelations in that we just haven't comprehended, but we want to taste and we want to see. So we just pray that we can just chew on this and drink on this throughout the day and throughout the week, that you would continue to stir our hearts to love. Desire and love, that we would des- you would stir our hearts to desire you, to need you. Lord, we just want to be poor in spirit. We want to live poor in spirit, so pleased and satisfied by you, and yet so hungry for more of you, so disappointed in anything that doesn't hold you in it. Thank you for your mercy, even over this morning in our learning. You're very kind, even in me speaking on something too big to even condense. You're so kind to give us a bit of content, to give us a bit of understanding of something so vast as your love and how it works. (laughs) We just love you today. We bless your name. Amen.